Acts 12, 1 to 24. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was, the, this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put, in, put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came, up, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. They went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing to the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. When he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. But having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's, food for, king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is the word of God. Good afternoon. Let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer, just being mindful of the fact that we desperately need God to work today. Father, we do want to come to you humbly. Hopefully that's our constant posture before you, that we come to you in humility, recognizing that we do desperately need you. Uh, this Sunday is no exception. Uh, every Sunday that we've had in the past, every Sunday that we'll have in the future, We know that our need will be the same. We desperately need you to work today. We need you to attend to the preaching of your word. We need your spirit to be present so that we might understand what you would have for us to learn here from the book of Acts chapter 12. We pray that we be encouraged by what we read here. We pray that ultimately your son Jesus would be magnified. And we pray that we would be comforted by what you have to teach us. So God, we're, we're pausing here and we're praying not just because it's what we always do, 
but because we want to visibly and publicly acknowledge we need your help. We do. Uh, We're encouraged by the example of the church here in Acts 12 that prayer is something that we should devote ourselves to. And so we just want to pause here before we start preaching to say we need you and we need your help. So Father, would you help us today? Would you be gracious to us? Would you minister to us through your word? Would your spirit be active? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the story began in 1955. Feeling a burden to take the gospel to unreached peoples, four American missionaries, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Peter Fleming, and Ed McCauley, set out to reach the Aka tribe of the remote jungles of Ecuador. The Aka's, or Waroni as they're known more commonly now, were known for being a particularly violent and murderous tribe. They had virtually no contact with outsiders. And so this task of taking the gospel to the Akas or to the Waroni was not an easy one. But the four men were filled with a passion for Christ and a desire to reach the Aka people. And so off they went to the jungles of Ecuador with the goal of learning the Aka language, translating the Bible into that language, and sharing Christ with the Waroni people. The work was initially slow. For three months they would simply fly over the village every day and they would drop off supplies and gifts with the hopes that they could build up friendship and trust. Finally, after three months of doing this, on January 3rd of 1956, the four men, along with the fifth, Roger Udarian, decided to attempt to build a camp about four miles away from the Aka village. The goal was that they would fly over every day and invite people to come to the camp, and hopefully they would be able to continue this task of building friendships so that they could share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Five days later, on January 8th of 1956, the mission would come to a screeching halt. The five men would be brutally speared to death by the very people that they were trying to reach with the gospel. With their deaths, it would seem that the movement to take the gospel to the Walroni people, too, was dead as well. After all, who in their right mind would want to go back as a missionary to the Walroni people, given what had just happened to the missionaries who were trying to reach them? If ever it seemed that there was a door that was closed for mission activity, it would seem that it was this one. Listen, things are not always as they seem. In the kingdom of God, things are often not what they seem. And as it turns out, the story of the Walroni people was far from over. Inspired by the death of the five men, Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, who had been murdered, Rachel Saint, the sister of Nate Saint, who had been martyred, decided that they would double down on God's call. And the two of them made it their goal to follow up and to reach the Aka people with the gospel. Eventually, they'd be invited to live in the village. And through that, they would make serious inroads by God's grace with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Eventually, many in the village would actually come to be Christians. And in fact, six of those who were involved in the brutal massacre of the missionaries would eventually come to know Christ as their Savior. One of them, Chemo, would become a pastor of the village. Eventually, he would baptize Steve and Kathy Saint, two son, or the two children of Nate Saint, one of the men who had been killed. It's an incredible story. I mean, how do you explain that? How do you explain a wife whose husband was just murdered going and living with the people who murdered her husband? How do you explain his sister doing the same thing? How do you explain a murderer becoming a pastor? How do you explain the one who killed your dad being the one who baptizes you? It doesn't make any sense unless there was a gospel movement here. It's a remarkable story of grace, forgiveness, and hope. But it's also a reminder to us that things are not always what they seem in the kingdom of God. 
It would seem to us from a human perspective that the worst thing that could happen if you're trying to reach the Waroni people with the gospel is that the five people most passionate about reaching them would be murdered. It seems like that would be the worst thing. But in God's kingdom, it actually turns out that that was the spark he would use to reach the Waroni people with the gospel. From the human perspective, the movement seemed dead. But from a kingdom of God perspective, the movement was just getting started. But this should not be surprising to us because this is how things often work in the kingdom of God. Things often seem one way, but the reality is different. Acts chapter 12 is a prime example of this. At the beginning of the chapter, it seems that there is one reality that is clear to us. But by the end of the chapter, everything we thought we knew is completely turned on its head. And so let's turn here to Acts chapter 12. And I think the plan today is I'll just, I'll I'll read through and as I go, I'll make some comments here. So let's start in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now let's pause here. Herod is the elder Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great. He was in charge of leading Judea, which meant that it was important that he would have good relationships with the Jewish people. This Herod was actually fairly popular with the Jewish people, and given that the Jewish people were his primary constituents, it was a wise political move for him to do everything he could to please the Jews. And so because the Jewish authorities were opposed to the spread of the church, it makes sense for Herod, from a political standpoint, for him too to be opposed to the spread of the church. And so with this in mind, Herod sets out to arrest and kill some of the most prominent leaders in the church. And that's exactly what he does, starting in verse 2. Verse 2 says this, He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, not to be confused with James, the brother of Jesus. That James will be mentioned later on in this passage. But James, the son of Zebedee, is the first apostle to be martyred for his faith. Now Stephen was killed earlier, but this is the first of the twelve who's murdered because of his Christian faith. And make no mistake about it, this is a huge blow for the church. This is one of the men that they would look to as a leader, as one who would help them to know what it meant to follow Christ, and now he is dead. And encouraged by the fact that the Jews were pleased by this, Herod decides that he will now arrest Peter also, with apparently the same murderous intent. In fact, we keep reading here in verse 4, And when he had seized him, Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now let's be clear here in what we read in verse 4, that Herod is doing everything he can to keep Peter from escaping. No doubt he'd heard about the earlier escape when the apostles had been miraculously freed from prison, and he is doing everything he can to keep this from happening again. He assigns four squads of soldiers to guard Peter. Now, a squad would consist of four people. There would be one that would be chained to Peter's hand, his right hand, one that would be chained to his left hand, and two that would be guarding the cell. These squads would then rotate throughout the night. In a 12-hour period, they would each have three-hour shifts to maximize their alertness, to make sure that they were awake, to make sure that nothing would get past them. Herod is not sparing any expense here in terms of his effort to try to make sure that nothing happens to Peter. Keep in mind that Peter is just a common fisherman. It's not as if this is Jack Bauer or if this is one of the Avengers who's stuck in prison here. He's just a common fisherman. And yet, 
Herod senses that there's something about Peter. And he senses that Peter is a threat. And so he's doing everything he can to keep Peter from escaping. With the plan being that the next morning he will be killed. Doesn't seem like things are going well for the church. James is dead. Peter is about to die. It would seem that the church is in trouble. But in verse 5 we start to see our first hint that maybe things are not as they seem. Verse 5 says this. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So Peter's in prison, but the church is in earnest prayer. Now we don't know what they're praying. We might assume that they are praying for his release, but given how they respond when he is released, we're not even sure that that's what they were praying. Perhaps they were just praying that Peter would finish well. But the point is that they were praying. They were praying. And in that reality, I think Luke is giving us a hint here that maybe things are not as they seem in this story. It may seem that Herod is going to have the last word, but the fact that the church is praying to God perhaps indicates to us that maybe God is the one who will have the last word in this story. And in fact, it doesn't take long for us to see God, or long for us to see that God is going to intervene. In fact, look at verses 6 to 11 here. Verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now listen, there's obviously a lot going on here. Right? There's an angel who miraculously releases Peter from prison and no one even notices. He had four guards watching him, no one notices. But in this passage, there are two things that stick out to me in verses 6 to 11. One is found in verse 6. Now, now get this, verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. I don't know if that strikes you as odd, but it strikes me as odd. Peter's sleeping. Right? When I was in high school, if I had a big game that I was getting ready for, the night before, I often had trouble staying awake. If I was in junior high and the big dance was coming up and I was calling a girl the next day, I would be awake the night before thinking about, what will she say? How should I say this? Right? As I got older and I was taking a big test or if I was getting ready for an interview the night before, I would have trouble sleeping because I'd be thinking about what was going to happen the next day. And yet here is Peter, the night before he's about to be executed, sleeping. This doesn't make any sense. Right? Why is he not laying awake, just, just sweating nervously? Why is he not fretting with anxiety? Why is he not overcome with worry? What is it that would make me stay awake just because of a dumb game, but makes Peter sleep when he's about to be executed? How do you explain this? How do you make sense of what's happening here? Now, perhaps you'd say, well, Peter just knew he was going to be rescued. That's why he was sleeping. But I don't think that's the case. I don't think that for a couple of reasons. One, even when he is rescued, he thinks he's not being rescued, right? He thinks it's a vision. So I don't think he had this expectation that he's going to be rescued. And secondly, his friend James was just killed. 
So we have no reason to think that Peter thought he was going to be rescued. I think what's more likely here is the reason why Peter was sleeping is because he trusted God. Whether he died or whether he was going to be rescued, he trusted God. Psalm 127.2 says he gives to his beloved sleep. And so Peter trusted that whatever happened the next morning, whether he woke up to the blade of the executioner or whether God miraculously intervened, that God was good and God was in control. And because of that, he was able to rest. It's much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they're about to be thrown in the fiery furnace, they say, our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we will still worship him. Peter trusted God. Now, it seems like Peter's come a long ways. You remember on the boat when the storm comes, Peter and all of the disciples are panicking while Jesus is sleeping. But now here, when his life is surely about to end, Peter is now resting. Here's my question for you. Are you resting in the goodness and sovereignty of God? Are you overwhelmed with anxiety on a regular basis? Are you stressing because of certain things that are coming your way? Or do you trust that God knows what he's doing? Do you trust him? I think think there's something here in verse 6 that would indicate to us that Peter was able to rest because he was trusting God. This is weird. It's weird that he's about to be executed and yet here he is sleeping. But I think the explanation is simply that he trusted God. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, my encouragement to you, based on what we read here from Peter, is that we would be people who trust God too. Whether he decides to rescue or not, whether he decides to give you the job you want or not, whether he decides to provide for you financially the way you're hoping or not, whether he does this in your relationship with the other person that you're wanting to do or not, trust that he is good and rest in his sovereign care. So that's one thing that sticks out to me in verses 6 through 11. The other is found in verse 10. Now check this out. When they'd passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out along along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Now I love the language here of verse 10. The iron gate opens of its own accord. Now, um, maybe some of you are saying, well, maybe they're just really advanced technologically, and this was one of those doors that opens automatically. That's not what's happening here, just so you know. Or maybe you're thinking, this is like the early prequel to Star Wars, that they just used the force to open the gate, right? And as much as some of you would like to think the Star Wars is from the Bible, it's not. That's not what's happening here, okay? What's happening here is that an inanimate object is opening on its own accord. You might say, well, I didn't know it had its own accord. Well, yeah, that's the point, right? That God is doing something here that no one else can do. This gate is opening on its own. It is making a decision. That's the way it reads here. It's making a decision that it will open for Peter and the angel. This is crazy. I mean, how great is the God we serve, right? He makes donkeys talk. He tells the ocean where to stop and iron gates open on their own accord because of him. Listen, this probably goes without saying, but let's say it anyway. We are not like God. Right? Gates do not have a, a will that bends to what we want them to do. We can't make donkeys talk. We don't do any of that. But he alone is God. And he can do things like this. Inanimate objects bend to his will. Listen, this is a work of God. And as Peter notes, he realizes this is truly the Lord who has rescued him in verse 11. 
And so upon realizing that he has indeed been rescued by a work of God, Peter goes and he, starts, or he makes an attempt to find the church. Not surprisingly, we find them where we might think they would be. Verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. This is not a coincidence, is it? This is not a surprise to us. This is what the early church did. They prayed. They prayed because they believed God was in control. They prayed because they had nowhere else to turn. They prayed because he, they believed that he cared for the church. And so here they are praying. Now, it seems that they were surprised. It seems that they were a little caught off guard that God had answered their prayers in ways that they had not expected, given their reaction in verses 13 to 17. Look how they respond here. Verse 13. And when he knocked at the door, to the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James, that's the brother of Jesus here, and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now there's a bit of a comedic element to this story here. Right, Peter is coming. He just escaped prison. They're trying to kill him, and he's essentially trying to hide, get with the church, report to him what's happened. And he knocks on the door, and the servant girl, Rhoda, answers, and she's so excited. She's so overwhelmed with joy that she leaves Peter at the door. Well, then she goes and finds a group, and they seem to have this debate for a little while. They're, they're coming up with all these crazy theories. They're like, Rhoda, you are insane. Or it's Peter's angel. And so they're debating, and eventually Peter just keeps knocking. And so they go to the door, and sure enough, this is not some crazy dream or hallucination. It is really Peter. And then in their joy, they get so excited that he has to tell them to be quiet. It says he makes a motion with his hand. Keep in mind, he's just escaped from a prison where they're trying to kill him. And now all of his friends are raising this ruckus in the middle of the night. And he has to tell them, be quiet. Right? Can you imagine this? This is an overwhelming joy here. It's, it's comedic because you're like, Peter has to be wondering, what are these guys doing? What are they up to? But there's an overwhelming joy here that makes them act in ways that just don't make sense. There's something unexpectedly joyous about this passage. And listen, again, I have to say, I hope that we have these moments as followers of Christ. Moments where we say to ourselves, I cannot believe God just did that. Moments where we say to ourselves, I'm so overwhelmed by the grace of God. Moments where we are so joyous that we start doing things that don't make any sense. Listen, I hope that this is our experience The same God who was shepherding the early church is shepherding this church. Ephesians 3 talks about this idea that we would pray for things that would be beyond our imagination, things that we couldn't even think of. Let's be a church that prays God would do things that we are not believing could even happen. Let's be a church that prays God would do things that are far beyond our imagination. Let's pray that there would be moments where we would be in delirious joy thinking, I can't believe God just did that. Let's pray that God would do things that are so miraculous that we would have to come up with crazy theories like, oh, road is crazy, or it's Peter's angel, things like that. Let's pray that God would do things in this church that can't be explained. And let's pray that we would be so overwhelmed with joy that we can't even begin to describe it. 
And so you look here, and the early church has this scene that is clearly being led by the Spirit. But then there's a sharp contrast with what's happening with the soldiers. Verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Peter searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, uh, this verse tells us that there was no little disturbance among the soldiers. And given what's at stake, you can understand it. Right? They knew that this was not good for them, that Peter had escaped, and, and they can't make any sense of it. Common men like Peter don't just up and disappear. Even extraordinary men don't just up and disappear. There's no explanation for this. And apparently for Herod, there was no explanation either. According to Roman law, which Herod would not have been required to enforce here, but he's going to follow the tradition of the Romans. If a soldier allowed a prisoner to escape, the penalty that was due to the prisoner would then be enforced on the soldiers. That's exactly what happens here. Peter was on his way to death, and because Peter escaped, they decided that they would put the soldiers to death. The bodies are now starting to mount here a little bit in Acts chapter 12. First it was James, and now it's the soldiers. But there's one more body that is still to fall. We read about that in verses 20 to 23. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, that's just like, I guess the equivalent would be the secretary of the staff for the president. That's that's kind of what a, a chamberlain is. Having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. This is an unexpected turn in the story, I think we can say. Herod, who seemed to be so powerful at the beginning of this story, is now dead. Dead because he refused to give God glory. Dead because he refused to acknowledge the one true God. Dead because he refused to acknowledge his own frailty. And let's be clear here, he didn't just die. This was always the part of the story that I liked when I was in junior high and high school. It wasn't just that he died, right? It's that he was eaten by worms and then he died. Now, um, commentaries are filled with all kinds of medical explanations as to what might have happened here with Herod. And perhaps for some of the doctors who are in the congregation afterwards, you'd like to take a stab at what the diagnosis was. But listen, you don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to be smart at all to realize that if you're getting eaten by worms and dying, that's not good, right? This is not good what happens to Herod, and it is a reminder to us, and I think it's one that we need to take seriously, that God is not to be trifled with. He's not to be trifled with. Now, in many churches today, we are constantly hearing that God is loving and compassionate. And that is absolutely true. This book is filled with God's love and compassion. Let's be clear on that. But we also have to remember that God is holy and that he is just and that he is not to be messed with. He's not. Herod learns this lesson in a very difficult way. There should be a holy fear of God in us. Because he is not like us and he is not to be trifled with. But while Herod's life ends, the church continues to advance. Look at the way this passage ends in verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. 
Now, I want you to go back to verse 1, all right? So keep that in mind. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And then look back at verse 1. Verse 1 again says this. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Verse 2. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So think about the end of that chapter and think about the beginning. There's a pretty stunning contrast between the, tru- between the two of them, between the beginning and the end. And it's right in line with what we said at the beginning. Things are not always what they seem. At the beginning of the chapter, James is dead, Peter is about to be killed, and Herod is ruling with a tyrannical fist. At the end of the chapter, Herod is dead, Peter is free, and the church is increasing. Oh, this is a radical reversal. We may have thought, but listen, if you didn't know anything about the Bible, and if you didn't know anything about the history of the church, and you came here today, and the first time you'd ever heard anything about the Bible, you just started reading in Hebrews, or excuse me, Acts 12.1, you would think to yourself, the church is in serious trouble. Right? If, if you're a completely unbiased observer, and you were just reading this, you'd say, oh, the church is in big trouble. Two of their most prominent leaders are about to be killed. But by the end of the chapter, the one who's killing them is dead and the church is increasing. And it reminds us things are not always what they seem. And in fact, we we might say that in this passage, there are several things that remind us things are not as they seem. First being this, that no matter what it may seem, the church will not be stopped. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but it's worth saying here again. Listen, Recently, in our culture, the church has taken a battering. It's not, it's not a popular thing to be a Christian, at least if you were to judge by what the media says and by what popular culture says. To be a Christian is to be maligned in our culture. To be a Christian, in particular, who actually believes that the Bible is true, is to mean that you will be mocked, and you will be scoffed at, and you will be ridiculed. But this is not surprising, because this is the way it's always been throughout the history of the church. Acts 12 reminds us that the church has always and will always face opposition. As Jesus reminded us in a passage we mentioned a couple weeks ago, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. In this passage, it seems that the church is in monstrous trouble at the beginning. Again, James is dead and Peter is in prison, but by the end, the word of God is still increasing. And so it is with the church. Listen, people will attempt to squash the church They will persecute the church. They will kill followers of Christ, but they will never kill the church. The church will not be stopped. Now, that's not to say it's going to be easy. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not suggesting when I say the church won't be stopped, I don't mean that it'll just be this force, that there'll never be any setbacks. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, there will be some very difficult things that will come for the church. This passage is a reminder of that. Listen, it's true that Peter escapes. That's great but James is dead, right? It's it's not always going to be easy. And in fact, there'll be things that God does that won't always make sense to us. Why is it that James dies and Peter lives? I don't know. I, I doubt that you know either. All we can say is that God in his sovereign plan thought this was the best way for the church to advance. Furthermore, you might ask the question, why does Peter survive here only to be executed later on? Again, we don't know. We can only trust God's good and sovereign hand. Listen, we don't know what's in store for the church. We don't. What we do know is that the church will persist. 
I don't know what's in store for you. There may come a day where some of you will lose your jobs because you hold to what the Bible teaches. There may come a day when your neighbors openly mock and ridicule you. They deface your property because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. There may come a day where some of you are arrested because you believe what the Bible teaches. There may come a day where some of you are killed because of your Christian faith. But know this, the church can't be stopped. It can't be. Now, we don't know what's in store. For some, it will mean death, like James. For others, it will mean miraculous escape. For others, it will be a life of difficulty. For some, it will be a life of ease. We don't know. But what we do know is that the church will still be standing at the end. We've read the book of Revelation. We know how the story ends, and we know the church is still there. Listen, nothing will stop the church. So no matter how difficult things may come, become in the days to come, and we don't know how difficult it will be. We don't know what will happen in the United States. We don't know what will happen around the world. It may get a lot more difficult. Maybe it will get easier. We don't know. But what we do know is this, that the church cannot be stopped. And the reason that's the case is because God loves the church. His son Jesus is united with the church. Ephesians 5 tells us that he is one with the church and he's going to do everything he can to protect the church. Now again, that doesn't mean that there won't be difficulty. That doesn't mean that there won't be suffering. That doesn't mean that there won't be trials. That doesn't mean that there won't be death. But at the end of the day, the church will still be standing. Now, my question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that God cares for the church? Do you believe that he's going to protect the church? If you do, then I think your response will be similar to what we read in Acts 12. You will cry out to him day and night. If you believe that he cares about us, and if you believe that he's sovereign and can do something, you will pray. To the extent that you believe that God is sovereign and he cares and he loves the church, you will be a person who prays. To the extent that you don't believe that, you won't pray. Listen, it may seem that the church can be stopped. And there may be pressure. There may be pressure on the church. And, and you may think, maybe it's not worth it to be a part of the church. Maybe, maybe I should give up following Christ. It's too difficult. But listen, no matter what it may seem, the church will persist. Now along those same lines, I would say this. No matter what it may seem, there's only one kingdom that will last. There's only one kingdom that will last. Let me ask you this. Again, if you're just coming to Acts 12 as a neutral observer, and I would say at the beginning of the chapter, who has all of the power? Well, I think if you were honest, you'd say, well, it's Herod. But by the end of the chapter, it's clear to us that power was just an illusion. That power was given only by God alone. There's only one who is still on the throne. And just to give you a clue, it's not the one who's being eaten by worms. It's God. It's the sovereign ruler Right? And the same is true today. No one has any power except for that which for God gives. God is the sovereign ruler and he is on the throne. There will be a temptation at times maybe to bow down to other rulers. There may be a temptation to go with the crowd and to think we should go for what they're doing. Or to follow some leader who's charismatic and can persuade. But at the end of Acts 12 reminds us there is only one who will always be on the throne. There's only one kingdom that will last. As Russell Moore has said before, Pontius Pilate is still dead, but Jesus Christ is alive and is doing fine. Listen, this is the one that we follow because there's only one kingdom that will last. It may seem that there are other kingdoms that are more powerful, but there's only one that will last. 
And certainly when you see what's going on in the culture, you may be discouraged and you may think, well, the church is on the downside. The church is, the church is in serious trouble because so many are opposed. It seems like the force of culture is going against Christianity, especially in this country. And I would just say things are not always what they seem. Now, along those lines, we'd say this, no matter what it may seem, it is worth living for the kingdom of God. It's worth living for the kingdom of God. It may seem like it's wise to build up your own kingdom. It may seem like you should acquire popularity and you should go for wealth and you should accumulate stuff and you should seek pleasure and worldly goods and you should gain as much power as you possibly can. But let's be honest, based on what we read here in Acts 12, that is a path for disaster. Herod had all those things. He had power. He had wealth. He had influence. He had worldly goods. And at the end of the passage, he is dead. Now, on the other hand, it seems like James is the fool at the beginning of the passage, right? James is the one who holds to the gospel, and he suffers at the sword. He's dead. And so, again, at the beginning of the chapter, you may think, well, Herod is the wise person, and James is the fool. Herod is building his own kingdom. James was living for the kingdom of God. And Herod is the one who's wise. And James is the one who's fool, is a, a fool. But by the end of the chapter, we realize that those two are flipped. That James was the wise one. Because when he was standing in the presence of Christ, he realized this was the true story. On the other hand, Herod, who's living for his own kingdom, realizes that everything he was living for was a lie. The fact of the matter is, you have a choice. You can live for your kingdom... Or you can live for the kingdom that will last. Listen, it may seem like it's better to live for your own kingdom. But it won't last. Instead, our goal is to live for his kingdom. I want you to look again at Acts 12, verses 22 and 23. Because I want to contrast this with something here in a second. Verse 22 says this, And the people are shouting to Herod, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, Because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, I want you to compare that to Acts chapter 14. Turn to Acts 14, verses 11 to 15. All right, check this out. Verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Sounds very similar, right? Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But catch this. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out in the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are of men, of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, do you see the difference in those two responses? I hope you do, right? If not, you're probably asleep, and I would just say it's time to wake up now. We're almost to the end, okay? But there's an obvious difference in these two passages. Herod is called a god, and he's like, yeah, it's true. I'm, I'm pretty awesome, right? And he's dead. The apostles, they call a god, and they're like, whoa. They tear their garments. They rush on the crowd, and they're like, no way. You've got to look to the living and true God. You see the difference? Herod is living for his own name and his own kingdom. The apostles are living for the name of the one true God. Now, 
Listen, I'm guessing here that not many of you are tempted when people refer to you as a god. Because I'm guessing not many people call you a god. I'm guessing you don't have that particular temptation. However, the temptation to live for your own kingdom is there for all of us. It's there for all of us. My question is, which kingdom are you living for? Are you living to build up your power and your influence? Or... Are you pointing to the one who actually has power? Are you storing up treasures for yourself, accumulating your money and your cars and your house and all your things to use for your own good? Or are you storing up treasure in heaven, trying to advance the kingdom of God? Are you quick to point your friends to the Savior? Or are you content to just let them think of you as a good person? Now here's the thing. I think we would all like to think that we're living for the kingdom of God. But I wonder how much we actually are. Think of the last example I just mentioned here. When we fail to tell our friends about Christ, in that moment, essentially what we're doing is we're saying, I care more about what they think about me than I do what they think about the Savior. Really what we're doing is we're taking Christ off the throne and we're putting ourselves on the throne and we're saying, I care more what they think about me than I do what they think about Jesus. I think we like to think that we're living for the kingdom of God, but I'm not sure how often we are. And if, if we're going to confess, I'll start. It's hard for me to. Because I'm much better in my theoret- theoretical theology than I am in my actual live-it-out theology. Right, I say I want to live for the kingdom that will last, but all too often, the kingdom of me sucks me in. For example, I say I want people to come to know Christ, but based on my actions, I think you'd have to say, if I'm being honest, I really care more about people liking me. I say I want to be generous and advance the kingdom and store treasure in heaven. But if you look at my actions, I think we'd have to say I'm I'm probably more interested in storing up treasure on earth. I say I want to serve people, but the reality is I probably actually like to be served more. Listen, living for your own kingdom is easier. It is. It's easier to be liked than it is to tell people about Jesus. It's easier to get stuff than it is to give stuff. It's easier to be served than it is to serve. But hear me, it's not better. It may be easier, but it's not better. Because the kingdom of God is the only kingdom that will last. And in pursuing that kingdom, there is true joy. There's true joy. One of the things that we need to notice here, now that we're making some headway into the book of Acts, we're getting about halfway through here. One of the things you should notice is that the lives of the believers was very difficult. They had very difficult lives. They're being stoned, they're being persecuted, they're being killed, they're being chased out of cities. Awful things are happening. But one consistent thing you note again and again is that they were filled with joy. In fact, sometimes they're so overwhelmed with joy that they act like complete fools. See this passage. Right? They had hard lives. They were living for the kingdom of God, and it was hard. Let's, let's not sugarcoat it here. It was difficult. But they were filled with joy. Why? Because they believed that the message was true. That Jesus was a Savior. And they believed that His kingdom would last forever. Listen, they believed that they were sinners. And that Christ had died on the cross for sin. They believed that Christ had died and He had rose from the dead three days later. And they believed that of His kingdom there would be no end. Here's the reality. If you believe this message is true, 
If you believe Jesus really is the Christ, and if you believe He's the only way, and if you believe that He alone will satisfy, and if you believe that only His kingdom will last forever, then you will live for that kingdom. But if you think that following Christ is just about religion, and if you think it's just about fulfilling obligations, and if you think that the kingdom of God is not really that important, then you won't live for Him. It's that simple. Listen, if I told you, if I invited you to participate in a program, I said, listen, here's the deal with this program. At times, it will make you miserable. And you are going to be really sore all over your body, and you are going to have to sacrifice times, or sacrifice time. You'll have to get up early, and at times, you'll be really discouraged. Would you want to participate in that program? Well, of course not, right? Who says, oh, yeah, I want to be miserable? That's me. I, I want my body to be aching every day. But if I told you I'm actually talking about an exercise program, and through that program, you can lose all the weight you want, and you can be as fit as you would like to be, and you can be in shape, and you'll be healthier, and you'll have more energy and all those things, then would you be interested? Well, if, if you prioritize those things, then yes, right? Because you see that the present suffering is worth the future reward. In the same token, does it make sense to say, hey, live for Jesus and be disliked by people? Give up your money and your time and your stuff. Risk getting hurt by other people. In fact, risk your body and your life. Is it worth living for Jesus? Well, if, if you just think that following Jesus is about religion, the answer is, of course, no. But if you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, and you believe that his kingdom will last forever, then absolutely it's worth it. The present pain is worth the future reward. Listen, if you are struggling to seek first his kingdom, and many, in you, many of you in here this morning probably are, if you are struggling to seek first his kingdom, if you are struggling to prioritize your relationship with Christ above everything else, it is not probably because you're undisciplined or lazy. I think sometimes we think, well, the reason I'm not really prioritizing my relationship with Christ is I'm just not disciplined enough or I'm, I'm just kind of lazy, kind of lazy. I, I doubt that's the issue. Most likely the issue is either that A, you don't believe the gospel is actually true, or B, the gospel hasn't taken deep enough root in your heart. Because if you believe it's actually true, and if that has seeped into every area of your heart, there will not be a question of whether it's worth it there will be exceeding joy. That's what we see in the book of Acts. Here's what you need to be reminded of from Acts 12. Christ is real and only his kingdom will last. Listen, things are not always what they seem. When Jim Elliott and the other four men were killed on the beach in Ecuador, it seemed that the mission to the Waroni people was dead. But the reality is nothing could have been further from the truth. When James is dead at the beginning of Acts 12 and Peter's arrested, it seems that the church is in serious trouble. But again, nothing could have been further from the truth. Listen, it may seem to you like the church is in trouble and that the church can be stopped, but it can't. And it may seem to you like there are other kingdoms that are just as powerful as the kingdom of God, but they're not. And it may seem to you like it's worth living for other kingdoms, most notably yours, but it's not. Right? Things are not always what they seem. As the worms that finished off Herod can testify, Christ is real and only his kingdom will last forever. And no matter what it may seem, that's the kingdom that we want to live for. That's the kingdom. Let's pray.